Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Today's conversation is with Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0. Perry has a unique way of working through and explaining where he thinks the classic evolution, i.e. neo-Darwinism, has gone wrong. The things that people say about neo-Darwinism and how actually at times they're just saying things for the sake of saying things rather than actually showing or demonstrating what they're saying to be factually backed up. Since reading Perry's book, I've been really encouraged to begin to journey this stuff out myself. And in this conversation, you hear me talk about the sort of pillars that I think are kind of pointing to a reality potentially beyond materialism. I'm not saying that that's correct or true, but what I'm saying are these pillars are things that point to a area where we need to explore, we need to ask deeper questions, and we need to begin working to get answers in. So the classic things here would be reason, consciousness, evolution added into the mix, as well as Perry mentions here, information, which is something he touches on within his book and is a core element within his book, but it's something that I need to, again, go away and look at and address myself. So this conversation highlights a lot of really interesting ideas within evolution. Um, I'm not saying any of them are true or correct or that I've got anything true or correct to say, but what I am saying is this conversation is helpful to begin to address these things uh, and at least process them in your mind to a level which is going to help you to better understand what you think or where you want to go and explore. Um, the second half of this conversation is looking much more at Perry's religious beliefs. Um, and you'll see here that I push back on him far harder than I do within the evolutionary element because I'm not an expert. I don't know if, if my ideas of consciousness and reason and evolution and information um, are actually true and real and right. But I have a strong sense and a strong ability to work through the questions that have stopped me being a Christian than the questions that have never really risen within me in regards to evolution. I've never thought about evolution before I lost my faith. And when I had lost my faith, I really did believe that neo-Darwinistic viewpoint of evolution. So yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, it's quite long, but I think it's engaging and I hope you find it fascinating. And yeah, please remember that anything you hear in these podcasts it's the journey that you're experiencing here. This is not the destination. This is not the landing pad. This is the takeoff and this is the exploration. So yeah, journey with me. Don't judge me. Cheers. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion and life. This podcast is all about listening. We want people to share their reasons for faith or their reasons for non-belief so that we can better understand what has or has not convinced somebody of the claims that different religions profess. This is a journey, it's not a destination. And I'm really excited to have you listening with us each week as we delve into different viewpoints from different parts of the world to try and uncover the truth. Enjoy the episode. 
Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. My name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Perry Marshall. Perry, it's great to have you on the show. It's great to be on the show, and I've been looking forward to this for a while, ever since you reached out. So it's going to be a pretty interesting conversation. I think so. I think so. Yeah. I, I, it's been really fun kind of engaging with uh, you via email and also kind of watching many of your YouTube videos that you have up online. I'll make sure there are links in the description to listen and look out for those there. Um, and also reading your book, which I actually finished this morning on my walk. And yeah, it was just, it was just really nice. So I was actually listening to the audible version, which is you reading it as well, which is quite funny. But yeah. Um, so essentially, Barry, I think it'd be really good to kind of, um, jump into kind of you and your work. Um, and I think to really help the listener understand the place that you're coming from with all of this and um, it'd be great if you can kind of sketch your story for us so if you wouldn't mind kind of starting from the top a little bit about who you are and about the things that have driven you to write this book and engage on this topic yeah so i was a pastor's son in lincoln nebraska in a very conservative community in fact my dad before he was a pastor he worked for an organization called back to the bible and they had a radio show and stuff okay so like I, I grew up in basic Midwestern, super conservative Protestant Christianity. In case you're wondering, they were four and a half point Calvinists. So that gets me to um, college. Okay. Uh, I got an older brother, old, young, older sister, younger brother, Brian, who you've met via email and we talk about a lot. And he and I are very close. And when I moved to Chicago, I visited this church called Willow Creek, which is a really famous church. And this was like the mother of the seeker group movement and like a totally changed church. I had heard wonderful things from these one people that I knew about Willow Creek, and I'd heard horrible things from my mother. Do you know what these people did? They did a marketing survey and they found out what people don't like about church, and then they took it out. Like, can you, like, this was total heresy to my mom's ears. And I thought, well, they must be doing something. Um, so I went, and it was like, oh, my word, they fixed it. They fixed church. Oh, my goodness. I didn't even have language to explain what was wrong with church, but, like, they took all of the bad stuff out and man, like, I love this place. And so I quickly got involved. And in fact, within a couple of years, I was running a seeker small group, which is a Bible study for people like you <laughs> or kind of like, like, okay, maybe not ex pastors or what have you, but like, you cannot assume that anybody agrees with anything. And I, I loved it. I mean, it was like being thrown into a pool full of some days piranhas, but it was okay. It's like we have rules. It's like you cannot ram anything down anybody's throats. Everybody's got to find the, their own way. You can point them certain ways. You can guide them a little bit, but really this is up to them. And that was fabulous. Well, going from the conservative Nebraska thing to the seeker thing, this is like sex change operation. Like this was so weird. Okay. But I loved it to fast forward again. I went there for 10 years and then I started going to a vineyard church, which is basically a Holy spirit charismatic place. 
that was like another sex change operation. So I've had two. <laughs> and, and so I've lived in like three completely different parts of Christianity that don't hardly even talk to each other. Now, I, I'm an engineer by education, electrical engineering degree. By career, I'm a business guy. I wrote books on Google and Facebook and actually an electrical engineering degree is a fantastic background for online marketing because you, if you can understand the people, the engineering helps you understand the numbers and it's a heavy, heavy numbers oriented business, right? So like that's my career and that's my bread and butter. Well, so things got interesting when my brother, okay, so you know, I go, I go from super conservative church and then I go to Willow Creek and I'm, you could say I'm going from the right towards the left or a little towards the center. Brian, my brother, he stayed on the right. I guess the right is that direction, right? And he went to John MacArthur Seminary, which is called Master Seminary, only men, super like, and like, he's just on that track. When he got out, he ended up going to China to be a missionary and teach English. So he, while he was there, he he starts emailing me these questions and they're they're encrypted because the Chinese are spying on you and all this. But these questions start coming out because it's like, well, uh, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And well, I went to see him in 2004. And when I got there, I figured, well, you know, he's going to have questions and we're going to talk about this. And what I found was he doesn't believe this anymore. He's basically done. And we spent the first couple of days just arguing. Now, Brian is one of the smartest guys I've ever met anywhere. And he is very good at getting to the bottom of stuff. Like, Brian is a bottom of the swamp kind of guy and he's going to dig and ask and ask. He's like, yeah, but you know, that doesn't really answer the question. That only raises another question. So what about that question? And we just go and go. And he's basically over my head. You, you haven't had a real theological argument until you've had it with a guy with a master's degree in theology who knows Greek and Hebrew and knows where all the bones are buried. And so this is not going very well for me. Even all of my Willow Creek seeker stuff and all of my hardcore Bible stuff from the old church isn't really cutting it. And so at some point I was feeling exasperated. I'm like, Brian, look at the hand at the end of your arm. This is a nice piece of engineering. Like, you don't think this is accumulation of random accidents, do you? And he's like, hold on. And he just comes right back with a standard Darwinism, mutation, selection, you don't need any designer. And I thought, wow, they really got him. I mean, it was, okay, if you've ever been that close to somebody and they had a complete religious 180, it is like mind bending. Like this is not my brother. His politics have changed. His views have changed. Like everything has changed. And I'm feeling unhinged because I cannot ignore a good question. And so we're starting to have a, an argument about creation and evolution, which we've never even tried to have before, which I haven't really had before with too many people. 
I'm just going on my engineering instincts. And I thought, you know, Perry, I think you need to shut up and stop arguing with your, you're only making yourselves miserable. You're not going to change his mind, not on this trip anyway. And like, you got a whole bunch of stuff of your own to go sort out. And I just remember thinking, all right, when I get home, I will buy as many books as I need to buy and I will go down the rabbit hole and I am going to let science make this decision for me because my theological sensibilities were already wiggling all over the place. And I thought, well, what do I know that I know that I know? I know that if I build a circuit with these resistors and capacitors, it's going to work a certain way. And I can run it through the calculator or the computer first, and then I can build it later and it works the same way. I know that. And if biology runs on the same laws of physics, then I ought to be able to figure all this stuff out sooner or later. So here we go. And I leaped into the void and I cannot overemphasize how terrifying this was. It was like, I might end up being an atheist. I might send my wife and kids to church while I sit home. Uh, we may, Thanksgiving dinner might be different. And I, and I was not uneducated, okay? Uh, in fact, part of my thinking, it wasn't just my wife and my family. There was another part of it, which was, you know, Nietzsche said, if we get rid of Christianity, it's going to upend Western civilization. We're basically going to have to start over. Well, I've listened to enough Ravi Zacharias tapes to know that Nietzsche was wrong. But now I'm circling back and I'm like, what if Nietzsche was right? Like, oh, shit. Like, and so my whole canvas was just um, totally up for grabs. And when I leaped into the void and like, okay, I'm going to go home and start buying books and stuff. It was like jumping into a black hole. Like, I do not know when I'm going to hit something and whether I'm going to go splat or anything. So that is how Evolution 2.0 got started. That's incredible. It's um, it's such a raw and honest story. I think it just, it just mirrors so many other people's journey into this kind of realm of questioning and and trying to work through these massive answers that, that life just sometimes doesn't doesn't provide for you on a platter right you kind of go to you kind of go to church and you kind of expect these sort of uh this means this and this means that and that's how you get through these situations and stuff and actually you you end up sitting there and going well how do i possibly now begin to kind of marry together this sort of belief system that i have and this sort of view of the world that is also very obviously real and and true um and then you kind of have those sort of pools where i mean for instance i've got quite a few friends that um that are kind of um, young earth creationists you know they really do believe in that six day um and i kind of say to them well have you kind of looked at geology or sort of the back background radiation or anything like this like and how do you kind of marry those up and you kind of you kind of see people almost trying to slap things together, but it sounds like for you, it wasn't just a case of just trying to put a bandaid over a wound. You were going to almost dive into that wound, almost kind of cut away the dead skin, work out what is real and healthy, and then kind of grow it back from that. And I kind of think that from what I can tell anyway, in your, in, in your book, you seem to be somebody who is trying to say, even if this doesn't hit my beliefs as they once were, um, I'm still going to go where the evidence leads. and I'm still willing to actually begin to 
follow that path forwards. I mean, how did that, how did that feel? I mean, you kind of, you kind of touched on it when you said, you know, your, your wife might go to church with the kids without you and stuff. When, when you kind of picked up that first, like Amazon delivery with all these books that arrived, picked up that first book, was it, was it just like a, like a massive panic or like, was it exciting? Like, how did you, how did you feel in that moment? Well, you know, you talked a minute ago about like, you go to church and they tell you all the answers. This was absolutely how I grew up. Now, Willow Creek wasn't quite so much like that. And Vineyard wasn't, which kind of came later. Well, but, but where I grew up, it was absolutely like, it was almost like, dude, like we got this all on a spreadsheet. Okay. And like what Brian started figuring out was, hey, wait a minute. If I mess with this, if I mess with cell C26, it changes D52. And it also changes F11, which goes back, and then it might even go back and change the first one. And, like, by the time he'd been in China about three years with nobody available to control his thinking, he was sitting in a room full of yarn, okay? And it was just everywhere. And he didn't even know how to put it together, okay? so. It's almost like you've been schooled and trained to have this passionate embrace of exact answers and and all these doctrines and stuff. And he was starting to figure out, well, the interdependencies of all these things, like this isn't working. Now, okay, for me, I looked at it a little differently. I looked at it like, well, rule number one is major on majors. Like, if it's not truly a bottom of the swamp question, it probably doesn't need to be answered right now. Like, I kind of had an 80-20 the whole thing. And like, well, I'm really into 80-20. 80-20 is fractal. Like, there's a 20% of the 20% of the 20% that is 80% of 80% of 80% of what you need to know. So they're like entire belief systems hinge on little bits of stuff, right? And a lot of people just get lost in the weeds. And so I was terrified and I was floundering and I knew I was floundering. Like, like as soon as I dove into it, it was like watching a ping pong match. Like I read one side, then I read the other side, then, and they would both make a certain amount of sense. But I didn't, it's like, is there a way that I can start accumulating a log of these are all the things these guys I'm pretty sure are right about. These are all the things these other guys I'm pretty sure are right about. And is there a way to sift through and like even get to a synthesis? And the other thing was, I knew that if I was just floundering around, it was because I hadn't found a solid fact. And that I was dealing in the squishy facts instead of the hard facts. And so my instincts, which came from engineering school, said, dude, you're looking for the hard, hard, hard facts. And so, you know, just kind of pencil a bunch of things in for a while until you finally get to some. And then I remember the day I hit a hard fact. And it just, it hit me like, 
a bucket of bricks. And the hard fact was everything, all the rules of internet, ethernet, digital communication apply to genetics. Oh, okay. Well, I specialized in communication systems and control systems in college. And if DNA is a communication system, then that is absolutely a solid fact. Well, I still stand by that 17 years later. This is the basis of bioinformatics. This is the basis of genetic analysis. And so now, okay, now in my anxiety suddenly went down. It was like, okay, I have one thing and I could drive a stake in the ground. Let's keep looking until I find another and another. And I just gradually begin to piece it together. Yeah, and that's um, I think that's a really wise thing to do. Is almost kind of like almost I've kind of used this analogy all the time, but um, almost like have a you have a tent and you kind of peg down one corner, and from there you can begin kind of to kind of put up the rest of the tent and actually work out what is real and and what is potentially real, but you, you can't actually prove as well, which is always an interesting one. So I kind of guess when you began looking at all this research and you began reading from kind of both sides, um what were some of the sort of major themes that were being propagated from from these sides and how did you how did you go about um working through what's true and what's not and i'm going to kind of begin to kind of draw on your book here because i think there's a really interesting kind of not mostly book but a fair whack of your book is almost looking at um random mutation and how actually that is obviously that's something that's propagated consistently within, within the idea of evolution it's in all the major scientific textbooks even you know um even my eldest is is five and he's already learning about this a little bit at school like it's just you know it's just being taught and everyone just says it and it's like this is a fact of you know the fact of evolution um and you know how do you begin to actually begin to read this stuff and be, and also begin to see possible errors within the way that these things are taught on like an industry level. It's kind of a, a scary thing, really. So remember what I said about like, you go to one side and the other, and you start penciling in these things like, you know, this looks like it's pretty true. And this looks like it's pretty true. Well, so if I looked at the narrative on the left, and the evidence it looked very, very, very persuasive that there was a whole lot of evolution actually going on. And I found it very, very difficult to argue against that in general, okay? It's like if somebody said that humans evolved from primates and they have 286,000 um, transposable elements that are common, it's like, well, doggone, like it's really hard to not think that there's a common ancestry here. And so there was stuff like that. Um, I would also say that, like, for example, Catholics are a lot less anxious about evolution than Protestants are. And I would read Catholic authors and they, you know, they weren't all, you know, their shorts weren't all in a bunch about it. And they would they would go, well, I believe, I believe the evolutionary uh, framework because of this and this and this. So that was like on the left. And so I put this in. I go over here and I go, okay, 
But as an engineer, the explanation they're giving me for how this happened does not make sense. Like, so to the average guy on the street, you go, oh, well, you get these genes and chromosomes and they randomly change. And that sounds kind of believable. Okay, if you're a communications engineer and you've written an Ethernet book and you know how all this stuff works, you go, there is no possible remotest glimmer of a chance that that is what's going on. No way, because nothing in engineering works that way. So I actually sat there for about two years literally two years going, it looks like evolution is true, but the explanations don't make any sense. And I just sat with attention, which Sam, I, I just think you can appreciate because, you know, I've, I've gone a little bit into your podcast and read some of your blog posts. And it's like, you have, sometimes you have these puzzle pieces and you're like, I do not know how to fit these things together. But both of these things appear to be paradoxically true. So can I just inhabit a space of ambiguity? And uh, another thing that I think, I think that um, highly religious people are trained to believe that they're like supposed to have a position on everything. Who says? Who says? Why do you have a half to position about Baptism. Why do you have to have a position about the age of the earth? Why do you have to have a position about soteriology? Like, you know, Karl Barth once somebody asked him, he's a very famous theologian. So, Karl, what's like the most profound theological truth that you have ever encountered? And he goes, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, you know, he, he wasn't being glib. Okay. So, you know, I just kind of had to sit with that tension. But then I discovered James Shapiro, Barbara McClintock, and Lynn Margulis. And I talk about all of them in my book. And, you know, 15 years ago, it wasn't nearly as easy to find this stuff as it is now. But I discovered, hang on, buddy. There is 70 years of literature, very well established, including Nobel Prizes, that tells a completely different story about evolution than this random copying errors, mutation kind of story. And it, I mean, we are talking tens of thousands of scientific papers that document massive arrangements of genomes on a whole cell level. You put you put protozoans under stress and they rearrange their DNA in a hundred thousand different pieces in 12 hours or, or some crazy thing like that. And you have resistance to antibiotics, which germs can develop in minutes. You have like cancers, like I, we could talk for two hours just about cancer if you wanted to. Cancer is incredibly adaptive. Cancer is evolution happening like on your pancreas right now it's out it's running out of control it's you know it's not helping anybody but i mean it's speciation believe me and so when i discovered this whole other world all the i mean sam it was crazy it was like 
I had all these intuitions because I would sit there and I'd think, well, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe that stuff that they're calling junk DNA has an evolutionary function. Turns out that was absolutely the case. And all of a sudden, it was like, and Sam, when you have moments like this, like sometimes these journeys are long and lonely and arduous and and you're like, where, where am I even going? But when you have these moments where all of a sudden dots connect, it's like the most pleasurable epiphany that you ever have. And what started to emerge was, wow, the creationists have almost defined this thing out of existence. The Darwinists have swept all of the interesting questions under the rug and, if possible, taken it out to the dumpster. But, like, this is where the real stuff actually is. And I had no idea how fascinating this was going to get. I mean, I have not stopped thinking about this for a single day for 17 years. And now, I mean, I won't get into what's going on now, but yet, but... I mean, this stuff is way more interesting than these two sides were ever arguing about. The stuff they're arguing about is just the surface level trivial nonsense. And, and this is not just some ideological thing. Okay, this affects healthcare and medicine and cancer and viruses and disease and infections and questions about, you know, what are humans going to be someday? And like all of these things are front burner issues. Yeah, I think that's what I found really um, pulling about your book is it almost placed purpose back on the map, which might sound bizarre to a lot of the listeners, but it, it not and 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 also not that it not that we actually have any necessary like answers to this stuff, but it, it you know you, from how you talk about the sort of um, I think you use the term um, evolution two point Swiss Army knife, like these sort of five blades of the um, Swiss Army knife, which your book goes into in, in really good detail, but kind of it how you talk about cells and the research that you point to and all these other writings. Like I'd, I'd literally never seen this on Twitter, Facebook, wasn't taught this at school. This has never come about from any, anywhere apart from this book. And I, I kind of, I kind of just want to just reflect very briefly for the listener as well. So um, when I was um, talking to you to start with, um, I thought it'd be really good to get an evolutionary biologist onto the podcast to, to talk about this stuff with. And um, I reached out to a really famous guy called Jerry Coyne, who I'd emailed back and forth a few times with some questions anyway. Um, and I mentioned your name mentioned I was going to chat to you and um his email back to me was one of the most um aggressive hate-filled emails that I've, I've ever had in my entire life and I get a lot of crap emails like it was it was terrible he was just so angry and he was like how dare you have this person on how dare you allow them to propagate their ideas and uh yeah he, he was just he was just fuming at me and I was I was really concerned on two levels um one I was concerned because the only time I'd ever experienced that before was in extreme fundamentalist Christian circles where you said to them, I'm going to go and read about evolution. Like I might go read a Jerry Coyne book, like why, why evolution is true. And they would respond in the same way that Jerry Coyne responded about you and your book. Um, I just found that really, really confusing. So that was like one, one, one area that I was concerned about. And the other area was, um, why is someone saying to me that I shouldn't 
shouldn't engage with something. Like that's almost saying like we we want to cover this up. I'm not saying it's a conspiracy or anything like that, but it's almost it almost feels like they're trying to cover something up because it's detrimental to their work or their worldview or their way of processing how everything hinges together. And it it almost kind of again goes back to that sort of fundamentalist roots where you don't want to begin questioning that linchpin because that linchpin shifts everything that you've built upon it falls to the ground. Um it, it was just bizarre. So I don't know if you've got any kind of thoughts about basically basically Perry, why do people hate you? That's, that's, that's the question. Well, so did you happen to run across Jerry's review of Evolution 2.0? I didn't. No, I didn't see that, sadly. So about two weeks after my book came out, Jerry Coyne wrote a review of the Amazon description of my book. And in the first paragraph, he admitted that he didn't actually read it. And then he went through the Amazon description and goes, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, not really. Yeah. Um, oh, that prize, that's just a sham. And he gets to the end and he goes, move along, folks. Nothing to see here. Okay. Now, what did I say about Jerry Coyne and his work? Well, I said in the recommended books, I said, you should read this book, but I have some caveats. Because Jerry's book does not explain a single adaptive mechanism that actually makes evolution work. Not one. Okay, so in Evolution 2.0, I talk about the Swiss Army knife, which, so cells can exchange genes with each other. They can rearrange their genes. They can merge together and make hybrids. They can do symbiogenesis. They can do epigenetics and switch genes on and off which these, a lot of these are starting to become household words now with all of the genetics that's going on. Weren't household words 10 years ago. I said, Jerry's book does not say anything about this. And this is the stuff that makes evolution work. What Jerry says is, let's all raise a toast to natural selection. Well, natural selection is an outcome. It's not an explanation. So, to be completely blunt, I stripped Jerry Coyne naked and I said, Jerry wants you to think that life and evolution and genetics is all random and purposeless and it's just blindly grinds away. No, it doesn't. In fact, there's a whole huge Pandora's box of questions that it only begins to open up and he does not want his fan base to even look. So he writes this review. Immediately, a whole bunch of his fans came over and gave me one-star reviews, right? And I wrote a blog post responding to his review. Now, that was five years ago. What's happened since then? Well, read the endorsements on the book. Who endorses my book? Now, you have to understand something. If an electrical engineer who does marketing for a living writes a book about evolution, if people from Harvard, Oxford, MIT, Columbia, UCLA are going to endorse that book, they are sticking their neck out. And it means they have read the thing, they have checked with their friends, and they made sure this thing is right. I did not get invited to the Royal Society to announce my Evolution 2.0 prize because I don't know anything about evolution, okay? And so what has happened is 
There is no way that Jerry Coyne can debate me and win. I mean, they're all free to go read my blog post and go read his blog post and go do your fact checking. Is this correct? And so, look, here's the truth about a good deal of 70 years of evolutionary biology is headed for the dumpster. That's a fact. Now, there's something else you need to know about this. In 2016, Dennis Noble organized a meeting uh, called New Trends in Evolutionary Biology at the Royal Society. And so it takes a long time to get something like that on the docket. And he got it out and they announced it. And then there was this panicked petition by 21 Royal Society members who did not want the meeting to happen. And they lobbied the president and all this kind of stuff. And they said, oh, you know, this is homeopathy. This is, you know, a bunch of nonsense. And Dennis had enough political clout and enough street cred um, that he weathered the storm and the meeting went ahead and happened. They invited all the neo-Darwinists in the world to come to the meeting and share the stage and debate it out. Only two of them showed up and the rest of them wouldn't even come. And ever since then, basically that whole camp has gone silent. You cannot defend the random mutation version of evolution. It doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. It's just an assumption. And most people, when they say random, they don't even know what they mean. And so this, now this happens, it's like, I, I wouldn't call this a conspiracy. I'm a business guy. I would call it a monopoly. And monopolies happen in every business, every profession. Every industry in the world is a good old boys club. And there's people that are in charge and there's people that want to be in charge. And, you know, sometimes the people in charge are doing a good job. And guess what? Sometimes they're not. And, you know, there's a, there's a changing of the guard happening. And, you know, the explosion of genomic data with genome sequencing and CRISPR and everything is completely turning evolutionary biology upside down and inside out. And if you keep up with the literature, this is what's going on. And so Jerry Coyne uh, has been espousing a, a version of evolution that's at least 30 years out of date. And he's still selling a lot of books, but people don't know that the gig is up. And so that's, I mean, that's my take. That's what's going on. Yeah, and what, what I was really surprised at is, so I went away and kind of did, did a bit of research myself and, and, and looked at some of the names that you mentioned and then looked at the people more recently who are also discussing this stuff and someone like 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 a Dennis Noble, who, as you said, has a lot of clout, has written a lot of stuff, is, you know, I mean, he's he's literally friends with Richard Dawkins and yet he's kind of saying it doesn't make sense anymore. It's, we, we have shifted, but as I was saying, it's Dennis not. Dennis Noble was on Rick, Richard Dawkins' PhD approval committee in 1960, <laughs> whatever year it was. So, yeah, these guys have known each other for 50 years. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy, isn't it? So, yeah, so like these people, 
it's fascinating because I think you see this within, yeah, as you mentioned, every area of life. And I'm kind of thinking more along theology now and sort of the sort of um, the way that people even read texts of the Bible and interpretate them um, can also be very much set within a, a structure due to a theological perspective that they want to adhere to or call true. We'll kind of park the religious stuff for later, but um, it, it's it's fascinating because um, I think I mentioned in my book review that, you know, it's sort of like your your book might, you know, never become a big, massive book. Although I feel like it could also become a gateway into understanding where these arguments lie and how to see evolution as different. And the way that you talk about adaptive mutation rather than uh, random mutation and how actually um, genes adapt um, compared to just randomly. Yeah, I mean, you kind of talk about this sort of fly experiment where a fly gets hit with essentially like um, you know, nuclear radiation and how, you know, this happens for many, 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 many gener- generations of the fly's um, existences um, across decades within our time. But, you know, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands or hundreds even sorry of, of of generations of the fly and actually we don't see them actually being able to randomly adapt something that's going to help them go through and how there are other experiments that have done similar things but how we can see um yeah adaptive mutations to enable change that is positive and helpful for the cell and and the being that the cells within and i wonder if you can you kind of help us as a listener and, and as myself understand that so people can kind of go away from this podcast going that's something that i want to look at and investigate i think it's a really it's almost that it almost is that linchpin within your book i think where everything kind of revolves around this purposeful adaptive mutation function that a cell seems to possess yes so evolution is not random events it is active response to random events. Okay, so think about pandemic slams into the world. And now you have restaurants that can't have anybody in the restaurant. What happens? Well, a whole bunch of them just like go out of business, right? And and being a business guy, like I have a front row seat to a lot of this stuff. Right. So like I've got a friend named Darren Spindler who runs a pizza restaurant in Wisconsin and pandemic comes along, can't have any indoor dining, can't sell alcohol anymore. He can deliver and he can do carry out. It's very limited. He started having record months last April. Well, why? Well, he had adapted in so many ways. So, for example, You know, a big adaptation has been Uber Eats, right? Like Uber Eats went from this little insignificant thing to being a really big deal because of a pandemic, right? Well, that's exactly the way biology works. Like biology and business are almost exactly the same. They they run on almost identical principles. The reason Darren has done so well in the pandemic is if you went and studied what he done, he's done so many things right. And then when the pandemic happened, like he's being totally transparent with customers about masks and food. And this is what we do. And this is our kitchen. And he's running Facebook feeds and he's showing, okay, this is how we make the pizza. And this is how we make sure we're not going to make you sick. He's just communicating, communicating, communicating. Right. And so what ends up happening is 80% of the restaurants in Green Bay, Wisconsin, 
they either go out or uh, go under or, or, or whatever. And, you know, 20% are thriving and they're doing delivery and he's got his own delivery cars and he doesn't even need to split the money with Uber Eats. And he controls a communication channel because he's got emails of his customers. He does all these things, right? This is exactly how biology works. So you put bacteria under stress, you start starving them or you put them in salt water and they don't like salt water. You, you give them something to digest that could be food, but they would have to learn to digest it. They will start trying stuff. Okay. And the mutation rate will go up by a factor of a hundred thousand and they'll start rearranging. And it's just like restaurants. Most of them won't figure it out and they'll fail and they'll die. But a fraction of them will. Now, Sam, there's a phrase you used. And I want to key in on this because I listened to one of your podcasts and you were talking to, I guess you have a friend and you guys had some dialogue and you used the phrase, the catastrophe of evolution. And uh, does that ring a bell? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. And, And you were kind of talking about how harsh and remorseless it is. Okay. I get it. I do. There's pain, there's suffering, there's struggle. And I especially get it because I'm an entrepreneur. And three-fourths of the companies, I think I've started to date 15 or 16 companies, and a quarter of them completely failed, and a fourth of them have done okay, and you know, and the, the, the rest just kind of struggle along. And I mean, there's failure everywhere. Well, because of that, I, I, I accept that. But there's another side to the coin, which is the beauty of the innovation, of the struggle, of finally putting the pieces together. And, you know, like, man, it really sucks to be in a pandemic, especially when you own a restaurant, right? But it is so beautiful when people adapt and change and innovate and create new things and they get through it. Right. And so to me, it's like, it's the engineering of evolution. It's the beauty of evolution. And see, this is not an accidental thing. Whatever Darren did, like it wasn't by accident, right? It was his best calculated guess. And probably three-fourths of the stuff he tried didn't work. It's like, well, won't do that again, right? So I don't believe a world with innovations and possibilities is possible without a world where tragedies also happen. Like, I I don't know how you can have it both ways. And so I guess I'm okay with the way things are. Yeah. Okay. I definitely want to push into that, but I kind of want to push you a little bit more in talking to us about the kind of evolution area first, and we can kind of jump into sort of um, this world. I'm I'm very happy to do that. Um, I think for me, what I found really interesting about your book is you've almost laid out on the table what it would take to prove you wrong. So um, you kind of almost say like, hey, look, this this thing looks like it's true, as in kind of, you know, cells are adaptive. So let's kind of go, okay, well, if this is true, then we expect the sort of codes to arise. Yeah, how does it arise, essentially? And and kind of what you're saying, really, with with your prize, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, is that um, if somebody can find a sort of naturalistic way for this code to to arise, which is able to essentially kind of propagate itself, 
and adapt itself and almost like kind of actual AI, essentially, then there is a question of like a prize on the table. But you're kind of saying that if that happens, that's going to then also put into kind of question potentially your beliefs and your systems of kind of um, mapping religion onto evolution and purpose, I assume. So kind of, do you want to talk us through a little bit of that as well, Perry? So this is a great, great question. So let me give some background. So part of the book, And part of the Evolution 2.0 platform is a $10 million prize. And the prize says, can you get code without designing one? Can you pour chemicals in your bathtub, stir them up, and get a code? Well, what most people don't know is codes and language and symbols exist exclusively in the realm of biology and human design. If you went to some uninhabited planet, I don't know any reason to believe that you would find codes anywhere. And if, if anybody can find an exception, I mean, we got $10 million. Well, so this is what I see as being the simplest dotted line between life and non-life or things that come from life. It's like you have these two universes. You have the universe of non-living things and the universe of living things. And a lot of people will tell you, well, life is just physics and chemistry. And uh, in fact, a lot of people will dogmatically insist that life is just physics and chemistry. I'm like, well, I partly agree with you, except nobody knows how to get codes from physics and chemistry. Nobody knows how to get consciousness or volition or sentience or any of that. And Sam, you wrote this thing, which I then put it on a tweet, what if evolution, like consciousness or reason, points to something deeper than we have yet understood? Well, that's exactly it. And in fact, just add information to the list. What if evolution, consciousness, reason, information point to something deeper? Well, I think this is the most fundamental question in science that can be precisely defined. And this is why I went to an enormous amount of trouble. I mean, it was a pain in the ass to put together a $10 million prize. I won't even go into it. It was a huge pain. But I believe this is like, if anybody figures this out, this is as big as quantum mechanics or the discovery of the genetic code or the invention of the transistor or like any of these massive discoveries. Now, there's a theological point I want to make here, because for the first couple years I was doing this, I was using this as an intelligent design argument. Like, okay, this is proof that God, like, intervened, stuck his finger in the soup and, like, did something, or God had a keyboard and he typed in some code, you know, almost like, I'm not really, that could be true, but I'm not really comfortable with that. Those kind of arguments have a history of failing. And I think it's a false dichotomy in the first place. I don't believe that in science, I don't believe there's a dotted line where you can say, okay, see this stuff here, this is all natural, but everything on the other side of this dotted line, that's God. In nature, in nature in particular. Now, miracles might be a whole different discussion. We could get to that someday. But in nature, 
there's a bad note in the symphony if I go. Well, all the codes are designed, therefore the genetic code is designed, therefore God designed the genetic code, therefore intelligent design, therefore God exists. I think that's thinking too small. What if purpose is so baked into the fabric of the universe that life would naturally come from the universe without any intervention? Well, why not? How could you possibly rule that out? I just became dissatisfied with this dualistic way of looking at nature and trying to force God into it. I, I don't think you have to do that. It's not necessary. That's really interesting. So where do you think then that God fits into the picture? I mean, this was kind of, this was going to be in my sort of kind of like final 20 minutes, but it's, it's fine to do it now. Kind of, it almost feels like that there's this idea that kind of cells have this sort of um, purpose focused direction that they have almost the power to be able to become something greater than they currently are in light of some sort of random event that's kind of caused them to need to adapt. So, kind of where then does God fit into the picture? Because obviously a very kind of like classic kind of Christian viewpoint would be that like God, God's fingerprints are upon everything and therefore we kind of see God in everything. But we also need to have this sort of um, ability to touch God, ability to interact with a God, ability to know that we are communing with the one that designed us or created us or brought us into fruition, whatever language people want to use. Um, and if, if you don't have that, you begin to kind of get a, maybe a deistic God or a God that is far away that kind of began and then left. So kind of how do you then begin to kind of add in a purposeful, creative force that has brought us into power and engaged with us today? Okay, these are really rich questions, okay? And I've thought about these very hard. So I believe that it is actually abundantly obvious that the universe and the earth are very special. The fine tuning of all of the constants. And I believe it's also abundantly obvious that life in particular is very purposeful. And I think you can, you can make up a very, very, very complicated explanation of why the purpose is only an illusion, but I, I just don't buy it. I think it's intrinsically purposeful. And I think any six-year-old knows it. Any six-year-old who plays with puppy dogs knows the puppies are purposeful and they know that goldfish are purposeful and, and they know that flowers are purposeful. And so I think this is, this is obvious. Um, and so, like, I really do believe that the whole earth is full of his glory. But God's not in competition with science or scientists. Okay, and, and, and I believe that any theory that takes a job away from a scientist is probably wrong. Like, if you, if you listen to some of the intelligent design guys and the creationists, they think all these scientists that are trying to work out the origins of the universe and the Big Bang and, and evolution are just wrong. No, they're not. They're discovering a, an amazing aspect of God's universe. Like, you guys are thinking way too small. So it's all here for us to discover. And Isaac Newton would agree with that. And Albert Einstein would agree with that. Right. And, and all these other people. So that's all fine. Okay. So what about deism? 
It's like, why am I not a deist? Like, do I believe that God is just outside of it all and he just started it up and let it run? Well, if you're going to study science, you almost sort of like have to assume that. If you assume that God is just showing up and doing stuff all over the place, I don't know, I don't know how you're going to come up with science because, I mean, I, that should be obvious enough. Okay, so maybe the question is, why am I not a deist? The reason I'm not a deist is I've had so many spiritual experiences. I mean, I've been in the room twice when people who were deaf got their hearing back after 30 years of not being able to hear twice. In fact, I've got videos of both of these things on one of my websites. And like, so I, I've seen people get prophetic words, like amazingly right. I've seen people get healed of things and I have my own spiritual experiences. And so my life experience is that of God being very personal, but a lot of people I know, Christians, non-Christians, whatever, there is a period of their life that they only experience deafening silence. And, and it's real. And it's dark and black. And it's, it's hard. And not everybody, like, sometimes it takes a long time to get through that tunnel. I've been through that tunnel got to the other side successfully um i feel, i feel that i i did i mean yeah yeah i mean but i don't i really don't want to make light of anybody's personal experience of well you know i pray and it just bounces off the ceiling and i don't hear anything and i i only get static i know what that's like I want to take a minute of your time to talk about supporting When Belief Dies. This will always be an advertisement-free podcast, and for that reason, I hope you will be willing to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast app, and check us out over on YouTube. Finally, I want to ask you to consider supporting the show financially. You can support the show on Patreon with a monthly gift or a one-off donation via PayPal. Everything that you give goes directly towards running and improving the blog and podcast. Take a look in the description for all the links, and thank you for supporting the show. Right, let's get back to this week's episode. Yeah. So kind of just, just reflecting on kind of someone else's perspective, potentially listening to this podcast, it could almost sound like you found this or you're talking about this amazing um, potential within evolution, which you know, might not be true, but actually kind of from what we can tell, it seems to be a possibility and it's worth exploring and it's exciting and it's vibrant and there's scientific experiments that can kind of go into that. But then there also seems to be this element within kind of what you're saying now about adding God to the equation, which feels obviously far less scientific and far less rigorously thought through. And I kind of wonder, kind of, do you agree with that, that actually this could seem to be more just experiential and less provable? So obviously we could say that there could be a God behind the purposeful cell. Let's call it purposeful cell because it just is it's easy for me to get in my head. Um, so there's a purposeful cell and we could say there is a God behind this and that is 
what I believe because I feel it to be true because I've witnessed certain things. But then I could also say, you know, think about, um, you know, there could be two things, could be a human-made situation where a mother in Syria is nursing her dying children because of a starvation due to famine, due to a war that we have created, i.e. humans. Or it could be a, a ecological disaster that's nothing to do with humans, you know, uh, say, you know, an asteroid smashing the planet, killing the dinosaurs, you know, the amount of horror and death and suffering that, that went on in that situation. And actually, you know, these two kind of like um, potentially naturalistic, um, and if, if you believe it is just naturalistic, um, things that have taken place where you've got the sort of like potentially human brought about and naturally brought about circumstances. Um, people listening to you say that you have felt things or seen things or witnessed things, these people getting the hearing back, that's fantastic. But the mother in Syria who's burying her children is probably like, well, that's not as fantastic as it could be. And the dinosaurs were like, well, what have we done wrong to be wiped out? I mean, it's a very loose example, but these things are kind of, you know, for me suggest that it isn't as black and white is potentially it. I'm not saying you're drawing it out to be but Christians can draw it out to be and again it kind of again that isn't scientific there's no way of actually verifying that there is anything extra that is adding into this soup here um yeah I don't know what what are your thoughts Barry so the evolution 2.0 view of the world says that there is there is some level of intentionality going on at every level of life you know, a Barbara McClintock believed that plants and trees know that you're standing there. Okay, and look, there's not like any lack of evidence that this is probably the case. Okay, like you, there's lots of books about all that kind of stuff. If you can like step out of your human centric view of the world where you think we're the only ones that know what's going on, <laughs> okay. You know, you can start asking questions like, well, what is it like to be a tree or what is it like to be a blade of grass? And, you know, and like, I don't even know. OK, uh, there's, a, there's these huge gray areas. But one thing's for sure is it it raises the stakes of pain and suffering and struggle to be about a billion times bigger than humans typically ever think about. OK, and and it adds like when St. Paul says that all creation groans because it's waiting, it's waiting for humanity to get their shit together. Like he really means that. Okay. Like an environmentalist could certainly understand that. And I think sometimes an environmentalist is just aesthetically like, like, well, look at all that litter or look at that toxic waste dump. Like, yeah, well, you know, there's some fish that got to live in that river. They might have some opinions about this. Right. And so this raises the stakes on our our relationship to nature and the, even what we're willing to think about. I think I think these kind of questions make most people's brains hurt. But see, see, I think these questions are at the root of an evolutionary universe. And I think you have to have an evolutionary universe in order for love to exist. And so I I am sympathetic to Teilhard Desjardins idea of the Omega point, which he said, nature and the universe and the cosmos is all trying to get to this ultimate place. And see, I think that may be at the root of evolution itself. I kind of mentioned, and, and, and you, you tweeted it, which was fantastic. Thank you for that. But obviously consciousness, reason, evolution, and information, I think as well, could be on there. And these things, I think, 
do point to things that we have not yet grappled with correctly. And we have a lot of work ahead of us. And that's why I really struggle with the term atheist, because I think within atheists mindsets, there seems to be this almost dictated mantra that you have to be a materialist to begin to grapple with the world and make sense of stuff. And I kind of, I understand why that's sort of like a, a propagated position that people consistently espouse, but actually there is so much wonder that seems to be beyond our understanding that we need to be engaging with. Um, and that really excites me, which is why I, put, I massively prefer the term um, agnostic atheist or just agnostic. I tend to call myself an agnostic in most things. Um, but for me, it's that we can't begin to attribute a a cause to it until we begin to understand it more effectively, which then brings me back to kind of wonder, well, so thus far within history, there hasn't been a definitive point where we can go, ah, now now I see God. There's been people going, ah, now I see God, but actually there's not been a definitive, ah, now I see God moment. And what I mean by that is it is perfectly possible if God in whatever form is real for that person, him, her, she, whatever, that person to put their truth and reality upon our hearts and also imbue us with free will. So we can know, both know that they are real and also both know that we can completely reject them. But I don't actually think a lot of the time that we have the ability to even grapple with what is and is not true due to our limited understanding. So you kind of like you can extrapolate that to the, the, the point that evolution is trying to reach is this goal. In that place, um, is free will taken from us? And a lot of people would like to say, well, no, we still have the freedom to choose to worship this this divine being. Well, then why why can we not be in that place now where we have the freedom to go yes or no, make our decision and move from that? It seems a very I, I can't imagine, like, so I kind of I, I use use my kids as an example repeatedly, and I'll, I'll kind of use it here because it, it pulls both ways. It's that, um, you know, if one of my children was to die, it would be absolutely like the most horrific thing I could possibly imagine would be that I, I would much rather drown slowly than, than witness them die 100%, which might sound weird to people that don't have kids, but th there you go. And also, I can kind of understand within an evolutionary framework how they could and will one day eventually su suffer and die and fade away. But if there was a god that was able to pull up from the fabrics of reality a truth and allow us to live within that, why would that need to slowly kind of work its way up? Why could we not begin to live in the reality of their fullness from the get-go? Because I still think we could have the choice to go yes or no. We don't need mothers 400 years ago to witness their children suffering, you know, like say, you know, 90% of their children died or whatever the actual statistic is. Um, we could actually allow them to have children and also know God is real and allow them the freedom to reject or accept it and also experience pain and suffering, but not the levels of horror that we do experience. I just find it weird, weird that humans seem to be told that you have the ability to make a decision to believe in God or not. And yet we witness more humans dying before they're able to make the decision to believe in God or not um, throughout most of history. So it, it just, it doesn't marry together for me very much. Sorry, there's, there's so much in that. So feel free to pull up our whatever you want. Okay. So at the end there, you've kind of saying something like, you know, the, the point of everything is for people to be able to decide if they, you know, if they believe in God or not. Well, you know, that's a very reductionistic evangelical kind of way of, of defining the purpose of life. Okay. And I, I'm, th th we're probably getting away ahead of ourselves if we like say, well, you know, that's the goal. My observation is that God has put human beings at the adult table and 
given us complete freedom to grow up or not grow up. And most of humanity doesn't really want to grow up. And here's, here's an interesting little angle on the question. So one of the things that I have found very, very, very useful over the last 10 years or so is I guess you could call it prophetic counseling where so there's different versions of this. Sozo is a fairly popular version. There's another version called Theophostic. But basically the way it works is you sit down with a facilitator or two and they're not a counselor. They don't sit there and ask you about your mother and lay on a couch and everything. The idea is they're going to give you a question you ask God the question and the answer comes back to you, not them. And if they're doing it right, they do not have the ability to interject their views because the only thing they're allowed to do is ask a question and let you listen to the answer. Now, I've sat in on a lot of these things, and my observation is God never overrides your free will. In fact, if you need to change a belief system in those sessions, you have to grant permission and ask a question in order to get an answer that will change your belief. Whereas humans are always trying to impose their views on other humans. We're so completely used to that. It's all some of us know. If God is really talking to people in these prophetic counseling type situations. What I have observed is that God will not override your beliefs or your free will ever. That that is the most sacred thing in the universe is the beliefs and desires of an autonomous being. And now we got 10 to the power of 30 autonomous cells or beings or creatures in the world. And we're all in this together. And I think we all have to grow up together. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but, but that is how I, I see it. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I want to go down the free will route. I'm trying to work out whether that's the right route to go down or not. I think let's go back, you know, 180,000 years and let's look at a Homo erectus burial where there seems to be some sort of, um, spiritual elements to it it could be that they're mourning their dead and they're burying things with their dead or it could be they believe their dead's going to go to an afterlife and therefore they're giving it items to carry on to the afterlife i don't think they had the free will to be able to decide that the christian god was true obviously because the christian god wasn't known at that point and then you could kind of bring that all the way forward to, to, to jesus and, and and the revelation of jesus so my question would be given the vast history of the of the hominin line and where we are as humans today what makes us think that we're able to interact and understand who and what God is compared to the past because I don't think that the Bible is necessarily the foundational text that a lot of people say that it, that it is due to well many things which I'm happy to go into but um, I think there's a clear confusion between or a conflation maybe rather confusion uh, confusion between um, what we espouse to be true like our worldviews and our kind of but the, the, the things we propagate, like my kids will say, that's not fair and all that sort of stuff. Like that's their, that's our worldviews and that's what comes out of us naturally, which we could talk about God in there. But there's also the sorts of um, 
agreed revelations upon which we believe God has manifested himself within. And, you know, these sorts of spiritual sessions that you're talking about sound like they are um, a mixture of the two, but also rooted around an understanding or an idea of who God is given these situations. Whereas, you know, I could see somebody taking um, psilocybin or, or DMT and having a profound dramatic effect upon their lives, which they believe they're interacting with the divine being, which I could say is just as powerful as, as this thing that you're talking about here, where their entire belief systems change because of their experience or, you know, their, whatever it is that, that, that goes on in that moment. But it's the point upon which you begin to ask these questions, which seems to be the thing that drives the answers. Like, I doubt any atheist will go into that experience thinking they're going to hear from God. And if they do, I'd be very surprised because the people that go into it are, are expecting to have an experience from God. Well, so you're right. Prayer counseling doesn't usually work on atheists, at least if they're if they're in any way dogmatic about their non-belief. Okay. I, however, I've seen it work on Buddhists, Muslims, agnostics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Hindus, New Age, Christian, Catholic, Protestant. Like I believe anybody can get a memo from the head office. Uh, and, and going to your earlier part of the question, I believe bacteria have free will. Now, it might only be a sliver. Okay, like, do you know what I mean? Like, if I said, you know, you have like 95% determined by instinct and circumstance, but 5% wiggle room of, but you could pick door number one or door number two, Everything I know about information theory and engineering and everything else, mathematics tells me that at the root of the ability of anything to evolve is free will, at least in some tiny degree. You have to have that or you cannot create information because information is measured in number of choices. That's what a bit is, eight byte. A byte is eight choices. So, See, I know your story, your, your world really got blown apart when you read Harari's book and you started thinking about ancient anthropology. And I would say that a good, uh, I don't know if it's the word is corollary, but it would be, uh, there's a book up here called The Penult Penultimate Curiosity by Andrew Briggs. Um, it came up in your discussion with Justin Brierley, and I know Andrew, he's a physicist at Oxford. And his book explores the earliest known, you know, humans groping for God kind of themes in anthropology and goes all the way to the present. Uh, and I really like the way that he's handled that question. And so I think you're asking like really good questions. Um, I just think this, this notion of free will is way bigger than humans like we usually think of free will as a human thing. I think it's, I think it's way bigger than that. That's really interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm aware that your, your understanding of evolution has changed my interpretation of it. So I, I, I 
my kind of free will argument doesn't really work that well anymore. So I need to kind of go away and definitely revise that, which is great. I mean, I've literally finished your book this morning, so I've got loads of work ahead of me, which I'm really excited about, which is good. This, the, I always say this is a journey, it isn't a destination. Like we're, we're, we're definitely here about exploring. I mean, I have, I have no issue with somebody, and this is going to piss a lot of my atheist listeners off, which is fine, but I, I have no issue with someone saying that God is real in, in some format. It's just the personal revelation that is God and imbued by God to an individual so that you can fully grapple and, and interact with this, this being that is above or in or whatever language you want to use around the whole of this kind of matter that we interact with and that we are ourselves. I mean, the fact that I am a, a physical being who is full of holes, you just can't see the holes because of, of, of your eyes. But if you look really closely, I'm just full of holes, more holes than there is actual matter. And the fact that I can have a conversation with another being which is full of holes and it rationally makes sense, I mean, that is like a massive what the heck moment. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so I'm aware there's, there's, there's wonder in the universe. It's just the, it's just the, like, even, even when we think of heaven, I, I know I've mentioned this already, but it's a realization that I don't think we're going like, to, if, if heaven is a place we're trying to get to, and I'm aware that I'm saying things that you might not agree with anymore um, based on your last thing, but if heaven's a place that we're trying to strive for as a, as a species here on earth or, or elsewhere, depending on however you want to read your theology, uh, free will needs to be a part of that if it is a part of the doctrine that you're trying to, that you're trying to attribute to get there. But what's to say that somebody in heaven doesn't have the free decision to go, I don't want to believe in this God anymore. I want to move away from it because if they don't have that ability, then it isn't free will. And if they do have that ability, then why can't we have it now? It doesn't seem to be an answer that I found that is comfortable with those two sort of, um, yeah, battles. I, I, can, I can only make a stab at that. I have a very hard time imagining that anything we call heaven would not involve free will. I think it would have to, but what if, the available knowledge is such that you don't ever have to believe a lie anymore. Okay, so an awful lot of conflict and problems in humanity is because people believe things that aren't true. Uh, or they, they live in a scarcity mindset where they just don't, they're, well, there's not enough to go around for everybody, so I'm going to burn down your village and take your stuff, Right. And like, what if that's not true? But what if before the ability to believe a lie is taken away, we have to relinquish our desire to believe a lie? It's like, no matter how you read the Garden of Eden story, literal, figurative, or anything else, one thing that it surely tells you is a lot of times humans would just rather believe something that's not true. They like it that way. I mean, isn't that like one of the most fundamental points of the story? And we have to wrestle with our desire to live in our fantasy world. And I don't, I don't think anybody in this earth gets around that. We, we all have to wrestle with it. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually agree with that. I think that, you know, we are consistently, and this kind of goes back to Hararia a, a, a little bit, like we are consistently constructing narratives to kind of grant ourselves peace or, or at least, or at least the ability to make now worth something for the future. It's that, it's that ability to kind of understand the state right now and, and understand the, the, the state that is hoped for and therefore live from this place into that place and almost kind of like, um, project that future state into today to begin living in that reality now. And I think that's, I mean, that kind of like sums up religion 
fairly well in, in, in quite a few respects. Um, I just think, again, like if, if God is able to do that, there is no reason why he couldn't have started from that bedrock, that, that foundation where, you know, why would he have had to have allowed, it's just, it's just the sheer amount of pain and, 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 and suffering and horror and abject depravity that has taken place to like I'm you know I mean I kind of you know look at my my ancestry and um, there's a very high chance that you know I'm only here due to somebody getting raped essentially you know quite a few generations ago but that's the only reason that it seems to be that I'm actually here is this horrific event that happened in my past which if that hadn't have happened I wouldn't be here but at the same time is it right that that happened and it's that could God not have I mean, I'm, I'm, these are massive questions I don't expect to have the answers to, but these are the sorts of things where I'm going, I can follow you this far and go, this is so exciting, but it's that extra level where the language gets a bit more fluffy, the the kind of what's if maybe's potentials are a little bit more unknown. It's that God could allow us to know this and to experience him and to say, I know, I know the one that desired me to be, but yet he doesn't allow that. He allows a what if. And maybe it is very much, as you said, maybe it isn't a case of us accepting or believing a set strict group of propositions that enable us to enter into whatever future state there is, if there is even a future state. But it's that question of if there is a future state, what does it take to get there? And if there isn't a future state, what's the point of right now? Um, yeah. Well, I'm not sure in this kind of, we could have another conversation maybe and keep going, but I think you'd be very interested to hear a little anecdote. So every Tuesday I do Bible discussion with my kids who are age 16 to 25 and four of them consistently show up every week and they always think it's interesting. And it's kind of like that seeker group thing where, you know, I'm not really dictating what they're going to believe. So, you know, we're, we're always, taking something apart and trying to understand it. Well, it just so happens that right now we're in the book of Job. And I think we're at like chapter 15 or something. And Job is 40 chapters. And most, basically most people, first two chapters, last two chapters, skip the middle. We're actually reading the middle. And my 16 year old son, Xander says, dad, this is my favorite book so far. I'm like, okay, explain that. And kind of between him and the others, the answer I got was, well, first of all, this ain't sugarcoating nothing, right? Like the last church I went to, I don't even think they talked about Job once in 10 years. It's like, they just kind of wanted to pretend it wasn't even there. All right. I mean, Job is a suffering, it's a pain and suffering book. Well, the thing that Xander likes so much about it is the arguments back and forth between Job's three friends and Job. You pathetic windbag. When will you stop blaspheming? Don't you realize? And if you, if you really stand back and you listen to what these guys are saying as they're debating, for the most part, his friends want to believe the world is fair. And obviously Job, you screwed up. And like, by the time you get to the end, it's like, no, uh, Job didn't screw up. Life was just pretty much unfair. Well, what my kids appreciate is the honesty of this. It's like, you mean I didn't have to wait till I was 47 to figure this out? <laughs> like, and by the way, this is the first book written in the Bible as far as anybody knows, right? And so, like, I don't have an answer to suffering. What I can tell you 
is that neither the Jews nor the Christians flinched in the suffering question. Now, modern Starbucks people have a really hard time with it, but they didn't. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually raised this question about Job being the oldest book in the Old Testament to um, Professor John Goldengay, um, who's a very well-known um, Old Testament theologian. And he literally said to me, oh, shot!" he said to me, I don't think I've ever heard that, or that's a very rare viewpoint. I'm like, but everyone else I speak to also agrees with me that it, it, there's lots of signs that it is the oldest book in the Old Testament. Anyway, that's a massive side note. Yeah, I'm wrong. I, I could be wrong, but... I agree Certainly. with you. So, yeah. <laughs> like, it, it is so honest. And, like, and, okay, what happened? Satan and God had a wager. It's like, okay, if this doesn't tell you that life can be capricious, I don't know what does. Right? And it's like, look, if you don't like this, I totally get it. But I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to turn 52 in the next week. And, I just think the older you get, the more you come to realize, like, life on planet Earth is not all caramel lattes and frequent flyer bonus points. And, uh, you know, the pain is everywhere. It's squirrels and it's birds and it's fish and, and, and it's not just us. We just have a level of self-reflection about this that my dog doesn't seem to have. Uh, and so we recoil against it in a greater way maybe but well there you go you know central mystery of humanity right yeah yeah no it is it is i think it's um it's it's such a hard one to reconcile because within within the christian narrative that i was woven to um there is the you know god will bring all suffering into a completion as in it won't make it the worst thing ever but he will complete it it's he'll bring that final chapter you know every, every tear will be dried um every sorrow will be lifted or whatever the phrases i forget I literally forget these days which is weird because i used to preach it all the time but um yeah it's different because god seems to be the thing that will bring that to its fulfillment and in him there will be the perfection and it's that how without being able to interact or know or engage with this this being that is God and knowing where that being's brought. I mean, you kind of mentioned that you know, all these different religious groups were able to experience or get something from this prophetic ministry, which, you know, sounds, I've literally got no issues with any of this. It's just, it's just how do we know the God that is behind that? And maybe it is that there is, there is something that is, you know, further on that I'm, that I'm willing to accept. Maybe, as I mentioned before, reason, consciousness, um, evolution, information, these things, are pointing to something that is further out and maybe that thing is is a god and these people and their religion i mean i spoke to um i spoke to a lady a little while ago that will kind of air two episodes before this and, and and she very much talks about religion being the sort of weaving into reality of something which is inexplainable so you could look at the resurrection of jesus as as, as a prime example like somebody clearly believed that they'd seen the risen jesus and that that meant something to them and from that they weaved into reality um you know, how does this make sense? You know, you see Paul on, on, on the road to Damascus and you know, N.T. Wright, a very well-known conservative Christian, has a great book uh, called Paul, the biography, where he looks at the 10 years that Paul spent resting with this as Paul was trying to weave the revelation that he had into reality. And and what what I'm trying to say with that is essentially you, you could look at religion as humans experiencing something which doesn't make sense or doesn't fit with the worldview they hold at the time and trying to understand how that could be linked to 
reality essentially around us. Um, but it's still, I, I still stop and struggle with, with knowing where the lines are, what is enough, what is not enough. How do we cast judgment? What is enough to what? What is, en- what is enough to engage with God and to know that you're a part of this thing? So, you know, you would probably class yourself as a Christian. I would class myself as an agnostic. Um, there is a line somewhere between us, which is the line which makes someone a Christian and makes someone an, an agnostic. But it's that reaching of that line to have a, any sort of certainty that you are engaging with something other than yourself. That I'm struggling to find actually rooted within the fabric of this world. It seems to be rooted within our minds, which is fine. But is that enough for us to hinge our entire existence and purpose upon? I'm just not sure. So I don't I don't know where I'm going with this, except I just feel like I should probably say that Let's ask the question, what did Job want at the end of the book when the arguing with his friends stops and then God starts talking about Leviathan and all this stuff, right? And where were you when I made the waters of the deep and all this? What did Job want? I think one of the things that Job wanted was an audience, and so they argue back and forth and back and forth. And then all of a sudden, finally, after a long deafening silence, God suddenly shows up and says, all right, let's talk. And in a sense, I almost think that's more important than the fact that Job got his wealth back and his animals back and he had more children. Like that part of the story seems a little overwrought, I guess. But the part where, okay, I'm listening. Now, I talked about, I know what it's like to go through this tunnel of deafening silence. Karl Barth talks about this more eloquently than anybody. He's got a book called Evangelical Theology, and he's got a chapter called Temptation, And he doesn't mean temptation the way an evangelical would mean temptation. There's a Catholic meaning, which is the deafening silence of God. You had your ceremonies and your rituals and all this other stuff. And guess what? God didn't show up. And you're left there with nothing. So, okay. And like, I went through a really hard season. It lasted the better part of 10 years, but there was, there was a spot where, so there was, there was this long period of time where mostly I felt like the prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling and I'm in this desert and there was a lot of stuff. There was marriage issues. There was business issues. There was this point where it was like, God's there. He's like, I'm listening. And things did not get immediately better on the outside, but it was a completely different experience on the inside of having an audience. That was my experience. And I realize I'm completely in the realm of the subjective. 
I've got a book that I'm almost done with called Memos from the Head Office. And it is a compilation of a bunch of these kind of stories. If you go to my website or to search Perry Marshall Memos from the Head Office, you'll, you will find some references to some of these things. And you could watch some videos and listen to some stories because um, the book isn't out yet. But like, I would just say, I acknowledge people go through these deserts and it seems like you're in one of these and I just honor where you're at. If I could tell you like almost like a dirty little secret or, uh, um, you know, when I ran those seeker groups at Willow Creek, I mean, this got pretty edgy. Eventually I moved my seeker group out of Willow Creek to Borders bookstore and I would have it at the bookstore. And once they weren't filtered through church and they were just like wandering in or seeing on a sign, oh my goodness, like the level of challenge just went up, okay? People, we would, you know, we would discuss and we would go through books of the Bible and we would do all this kind of stuff. And I loved the tension and the struggle and the questions and the challenge. And it was almost like sometimes People would be like, no, I don't believe this. And they'd wander off. Other people would go, you know what? I like this. I like this Jesus guy. I'm going to become a Christian. It was almost like a little bit of a letdown when they would meet Jesus because their angst would go away. And it was like, you know, I think I'm done with you. You like, hey, I know, I know this guy and he's got a Bible study and he disciples people. And I think you should go talk to him because I just like these angst-ridden people a lot better than I like the peaceful ones. And, you know, maybe that's good, maybe that's bad. I don't know. But that's, I like the demilitarized zone much more than I like being on one side or the other. I think all the interesting questions happen in the demilitarized zone. It's why I like your podcast. And I respect the fact you didn't just like like a lot of people, they just flip from one fundamentalism to another fundamentalism, and they're still a fundamentalist. I have a feeling that Jerry Coyne was originally a fundamentalist religious something or other, and he flipped to being a fundamentalist atheist, and he never got over his fundamentalism. And fundamentalism is a personality type. It's not a religion. It's just an archetype. It's just one of the people in Canterbury Tales. And you meet one like in every crowd. And they're just dogmatic and like they got the answers and they want certainty. And like, you know, if you want certainty, I really wouldn't recommend that you go into science. Maybe you should be an accountant or no, no, don't be an accountant. Be a bookkeeper. Bookkeeper is like really certain. I'm not even sure accounting is certain, but, but I know bookkeeping is. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? The way that we, the way that we're wired. I was also reflecting a few podcasts ago about the, the fact, and I find it a weird tell, but the fact that we are so wired to want truth. Like, where did that come from? Where did the ability on the the drive to want truth come from? Because I don't seem to be able to let go, right? I'm I'm consistently like, no, no, I, I want to know what's true. Like, wh- why? Why do I, it doesn't matter. It might not even matter. Why am I so dictated by this desire to know what and what is and what is not true? Um, There's a question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like... Just camp out there for about six months. Yeah. Really, really, like, these are questions. You circle them and you circle them and you circle them, like, as long as you need to. 
why the hell am I so obsessed with truth? And what is that? Okay, there's a good start for a great set of questions. Look, I admire people that will take the long way through a problem. These are not easy. And you probably found, you know, a lot of your like Christian buddies don't really want to go there. Right? Well, I guess you're cursed with whatever we're cursed with. Yeah. I think it's good. I think it's healthy. Yeah. Me too. I always say that if God is real um, and if he's, if he's there, then the, the, the search for truth and understanding will, will reveal him in whatever form that that comes. And I'm very aware that it will not be, it will not be the conservative Christianity that I left. It will be something different, which, which is exciting. I think. We haven't even talked about this. My Christianity underwent major reconstruction through all of this because I just kept taking stuff and putting on the anvil and giving people a chance to to swing hard at it. I think if you're going to get to the truth in the right foundations, I think you have to rewind to 400 AD or maybe 200 and start playing the tape forward again with different assumptions, different things getting baked in, different doctrines. I think there's a lot of stuff that is way off. And I'm not seeing this like some bitter fundamentalist. I'm just saying there is a bunch of stuff that's not working. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. Oh, you know that guy you were just interviewing the last podcast that came out and he like went through the church fathers and like all of this church history. And he had this list of like all the things that you could go to hell for. You know, I don't think any of those things are in the Bible. When I read Jesus, as far as I can tell, the best way to get to hell is to not take care of the poor. Hello. I mean, that's what's actually in the Gospels. All this doctrine about, well, if you don't believe in four and a half points of Calvinism, you know, that's a bunch of legalistic nonsense. It's like you feed the poor, you clothe the naked, you fight injustice. What are all these people doing? There's an awful lot of church that's just masturbating. Uh, I mean, I, I agree. I think the, I think, I mean, Dave said it on our very early podcast and I still agree with it. I think the, the figure of Jesus is some, someone who is very attractive. Um, something that's very exciting. It's just the ability to live it out in reality is, is the, is the big question. Well, it's very attractive and also scary to death. Oh yeah. I mean, this is, this is an insanely courageous person. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, you know, Whatever your theology is about it, I mean, talk about somebody that will shake you to your core. So there's an, there is not enough wrestling with mysteries. There is not enough appreciating questions. Andrew Briggs, the, the physicist that wrote uh, Penultimate Curiosity, he was telling me, uh, yeah, when Paul Davies has a conference, he always likes to invite me. And the reason he invites me is because I like questions more than I like answers. And I always give a presentation about like, these are the 15 things in particle physics that nobody knows the answer to. And it makes everybody squirm. You know what I found? Ordinary scientists tell you what they know. Great scientists tell you what they don't know. 
and just replace scientist with theologian, philosopher, bowler, tennis player, like it's in the questions. And, and, and not that you just have to live in a fog of questions. You'll, you'll eventually get to answers. But if, if you can be okay in your skin with a whole bunch of unanswered questions around you, man, I, I think you're going to get through life with a lot less bruises and disappointments. Because, look, the first time the people who have all the answers catastrophically fail that really messes most people up bad. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? So I guess it'd be good now to to look at kind of where people can go to kind of carry on their exploration of this stuff. I'm kind of talking for people in general who want to kind of read more about your works and, and what you've done, but also for me, Perry, like if I wanted to go away and begin to explore the idea of, um, yeah, these, these cells that are driving themselves forwards almost um where 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 would you say turn to next like what would be the next book you'd say well, here's here's the one for your list well let's try to focus on books that are easy to read and easy to understand so obviously i rather like evolution 2.0 and you can find that on amazon i also think dennis noble has a book called dance to the tune of life biological relativity it's a short book and it's very profound and it explains the post-Darwinian evolution concept very well. I think, well, the, the Evolution 2.0 YouTube channel has a lot of interesting things on it and there's a podcast and, you know, we, we, there, we go all kinds of different directions in that. It's not just about science. Um, and I think people would find that interesting if you dig a little bit, you'll find some of my stuff does get into theology. And I know you're going to have some links and maybe people would like to go. So I don't really know your audience. I don't know what they're into. It, it sounds probably a little more philosophy and theology than science. And I have a lot more thoughts about theology than I typically talk about because you can only blog about so many things. But man, I, like, I just want to say to everybody listening, look, if you are wrestling with really hard questions, just remember that when Jacob's name was changed to Israel, Israel means wrestled with God. Like dealing with God is not all rainbows and unicorns. I think there's a place for that in children's books, but at some point you have to grow up and you have to read the book of Job and you've got to, You've got to deal with the world the way it really is. And I think uh, there's something in, in common between Brian, my brother, and me, and you, is this crisis was our summons to grow up. Brian was not grown up when he got out of seminary. He thought he was, you know, and I'm not putting him down. And I was not grown up either. And I'm not saying I'm grown up now, but I'm working on it. So I just salute, I salute people that are in the journey. Thanks, Perry. That's, that's really kind. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm going to be chatting to your brother, Brian, um, in a few weeks. Yeah, about about four weeks time, which should be really good. Um, hear yeah. a bit of his story as well. 
Wish you. I can't wait to hear what he's, I don't know what he's going to tell you. <laughs> I, I'd be interested in myself, um, and I don't know what you're going to ask him. And I don't, I don't ply him with philosophical, the, like those kinds of questions too much. Uh, it's not that we avoid it. It's just not really necessary. We talk about all kinds of stuff. I'll be the first guy to want to listen to your podcast. <laughs> I'll make sure you get a copy before it goes live, man. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Amazing. Well, well Perry, for- go on, sorry. Time- I was just going to say, basically, thank you so much for coming on. And it'd be great if you could let people know how they can get in touch with you. I'm sure there's going to be people with questions that want to kind of, yeah, work things through. Where, where can they go? Go to evo2.org, evo2.org, and just sign up, just get on the email list. And that'll get you on a journey. You just scroll down and there, there's an opt-in. Uh, and then we have an Evolution 2.0 podcast and a YouTube channel. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's more where it came from. Amazing. And yeah, there'll be links to everything in, in the description. Um, I'll make sure that they're all vested first. Don't worry. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on and chatting this through. It's been, um, it's been fascinating. Your book is, uh, has given me hope again, which is a weird thing to say. So thank you for that. Well, uh, that's beautiful. That's the best thing I've heard all day. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Evolution 2.0